As you start to reach more people, things start to feel more complex. There's more to do and more to keep track of, and it starts to actually take time away from creating content. I felt this struggle personally. The more creator science grew, the more it felt like I was dropping the ball. So I did something about it. I built a set of rock solid systems, all in Notion to support the business as we grew. And it worked like a charm. I've now taken my personal Notion setup and productized it. It's called Creator HQ, and it's the complete operating system that you need for your creator business. I built Creator HQ to be an all-in-one workspace designed to save you more time, create more content, and drive more revenue. By leveraging Creator HQ, we are publishing more than we ever have, and we're nearing $1 million in annual revenue because of it. It brings all of your data and processes into one place with custom-built dashboards to reduce friction in managing tasks, creating content, and collaborating with your team. I've seriously spent more than three years building this, and now you can have the same systems that I use right out of the box. In the lab, one of our members just posted, I have spent the last few weeks diving into Creator HQ, learning how it works, and making it my own. This is the first time in a while that I felt this organized and filled with hope that I can find a workflow that will work for me with my whole business. This is gold. I will definitely be giving a testimonial for this badass product. If you're new to Notion, don't worry. I've included a ton of specific tutorials to help you learn how to use Notion generally and Creator HQ specifically. I've never seen another Notion product integrate tutorials like we have here. More than 300 other creators are already using Creator HQ, and I am not exaggerating when I say I would be lost without this system. Creator HQ is what keeps the trains running over here. As a podcast listener, I'm giving you my best price. You can get 10% off using the promo code podcast at checkout. Just head to creatorhq.co to watch the video and learn more. That's creatorhq.co and use promo code podcast to save 10%. Put together a million dollar week, and I was like, hmm, I'm going to test 50 different covers Once I found the winning cover via Facebook ads, then I tested the color variation of the cover. Then I tested mocking it up in bookstores and mocking it up in Amazon. And that's how we ended up on green because it's also my favorite color, but this is the ultimate version that you don't see business books in green. Hello, my friend. Welcome back to another episode of Creator Science. For the past two weeks, you've probably seen a lot of today's guest, Noah Kagan. Noah is the CEO of AppSumo, an eight-figure company that is the number one software deals site. He also runs a YouTube channel where he shares his tips for finding financial freedom with more than 930,000 subscribers. Before AppSumo, he was the 30th employee at Facebook, reporting directly to Mark Zuckerberg, and the fourth employee at Mint.com. So here's the thing. AppSumo is obviously a large company. They're aiming for more than $56 million in revenue this year alone. And at the same time, Noah has built this reputation for being a relentless tinkerer. He's constantly running small experiments. The results of those small experiments can be really big over time. So a couple weeks ago, Noah's new book, Million Dollar Weekend, officially became available for sale. And since that time, he's been everywhere. The Tim Ferriss Show, School of Greatness, Deep Dive with Ali Abdal. If you're running in the same circles that I am, you probably can't miss him. A lot of those interviews are great, by the way. I really recommend his episode of Tropical MBA with Dan Andrews and that four-hour conversation on the Tim Ferriss podcast. But to make this episode different, I decided to not talk about the content of the book, but his experience making the book itself. As a consummate entrepreneur and hilariously honest guy, I thought he might have a unique experience writing this thing. 
and he did not disappoint in this interview. So I wrote a book proposal called The Challenge, and it was all these challenges that you can do to get confidence, overcome fear, overcome rejection, and be able to have success in life. And I sent it to an agent who's James Clear's agent. Her name is Lisa Demona. And she said, yeah, this is trash. (laughs) That story has a happy ending because Lisa did end up representing Noah and this book. But what you see here is Noah's typical quick and dirty experimental approach may not quite work in a traditional publishing setting. But Noah took that initial rejection and spent a year putting together a new proposal. Then you take this proposal and you, you pitch it, like you do a presentation to different publishing houses. That I took so not seriously. I'm just like goofing off. I'm like, yeah, this book, is, I think it's going to sell pretty damn great. I'm a, it's going to sell well. And I just kind of goofed off. And I, I remember trying to sell it for about $100,000 advance. And for me personally, I'm not trying to get rich. Not, I'm not trying. I will not get rich on the book at all. And I just didn't take that as seriously. And it turned into a bidding war. Later in the interview, Noah tells us exactly how much of an advance he got, and I almost fell out of my chair. But then after the proposal process, he goes to work writing the book, and he decided to call in some help. He got in touch with the co-writer on some bestsellers, including Never Split the Difference and Never Eat Alone. So I wanted to hire the best business writer in the world, so I cold messaged Tall, and then he's a shit ton of money. I think you get the point. This is a very fun, very honest look getting into the weeds of Noah's publishing experience from idea to now marketing the book post launch, even sharing the cost that he explored of services like ghostwriting and more. I'd love to hear what you think about this episode. You can find me on Twitter or Instagram at jklaus. Tag me. Sharing the show is what helps us grow. It truly, truly does. So thank you for helping to spread the word. But now let's talk with Noah. So you've got a nine-figure business doing eight figures in revenue. Why have you chosen to create content as a personal brand outside of just continuing to crush the software world? It's fun. It's really, really fun. And I get to meet cool people, right? Either cool people that I get to go on their yachts or go on their private jets or people I interview. Like I just interviewed last year the founder of Kinko's and it was so cool. Yesterday I went to Kinko's. You know, like what a, what a cool thing that it's provided. Yeah. And then I, I think as well, from a business perspective with AppSumo, it's brand awareness. At the end of the day, if you think about a lot of the best brands out there, there's a person next to the brand or in front of the brand. And I, I think that applies for all businesses today. So, and that doesn't mean it has to be you. It could be like right now at AppSumo, there's a guy, Mitchell, who works for us that's building his own brand as a part of AppSumo. And so I would say a lot of the AppSumo customers hear about me in some of these videos and they're like, what's this AppSumo thing? I'm gonna go check it out. What's the relationship of those two entities? Because I know some folks who are doing their own thing on the side of their business and they like very much church and state it. They're like, these are separate things because I'm building a bridge to the future and I'm bored of my business. But it seems like you're explicitly using it as I want to drive attention to the main business as well. Is this like an interview from the IRS? Good. (laughs) We don't have to go into like the bank accounts. I'm saying like how you think about it in your mind. Yeah. So I started my content before I started my business. And so for everyone out there, if you don't have a business yet, build up an audience, even one at a time, right? It doesn't have to be a large audience to have large success. And I've always been content, you know, since 2000 on my noahkagan.com and blogging and, and, you know, social media with Twitter stuff and Facebook and YouTube lately. The way I approach it though, which I think has been beneficial is that I have AppSumo be my main sponsor. So I have a separate LLC called Taco and AppSumo is my number one sponsor of it. And then I have a separate entity, which for tax reasons is much more beneficial. So there's no salary tax, there's no payroll tax. And then there's a lot more deductions in that separate entity. 
I also think in, in, in main businesses, if you have a content arm, you can experiment and fail on lighter things and on quicker things. And then if it works, you know, kind of teach that back into the AppSumo ecosystem. But yeah, they're two separate entities. How do you think about distributing your time across these two universes of AppSumo and all things Noah Kagan? Well, I'll tell you candidly, I think I used to feel very self-conscious about Noah Kagan, right? Like who is he and should he be public and how public can he be and should he share things? And I, I do like it, but I think I felt more, you know, I want this external validation. Like if I can get on Jay's show, then, you know, he likes me and this audience likes me, then I'll be liked. And over time, as you get older and as you understand yourself better and you, and you do things that you feel good about yourself, you're just like, well, this is me and I, I'm okay with it. And if others are great, and if they're not, that's okay too. And Lately, I would say with the, I have the book launch, I have a pregnant girlfriend, the YouTube channel, and AppSumo. I'm not doing it well. And I would say being an entrepreneur, though, moving past book launch, my main aim is to just control my time better. Mm. So I would say traditionally it's been maybe four days a week AppSumo and then like half of a day. So maybe like 5% of the week doing the Noah Kagan brand. So that would be YouTube videos or creating tweets. Now with the book launch, it's probably... I don't know, four and a half days of book marketing and then half the time on AppSumo check-ins. But that's also really interesting for people to think about that are starting or as they're growing a business, you don't have to do the work. And I know when someone told me that, I, I was like, well, you're a loser because I like working. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, this, it's actually this reality where find the people that enjoy that work and they're better at it than you and, and really do your best, which is hard to stay the hell out of their business and out yeah. of their way and pay them whatever they want. And so that is nice where there's Sean and Alona and Anna and Kellen and Chad running AppSumo so I can hang out with Jay. Yeah. And I think this is, is a good higher level concept for everyone. It's like, what do you like doing? Like, I don't like customer support. I don't like doing sales anymore. I don't like programming. I don't like, I like talking about cool stuff. The team's like, yeah, you go do that. I was like, really? I can just do this? Like, yeah, get the hell out of here. You bug us. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, feel, I feel like this is uniquely challenging for folks in this audience's position because- in like software or traditional business, a lot of times it's like you start by you are doing the work and then you hire people who can do that work instead of you. And in this business model, a lot of the work that you're doing is creating content under your your name and likeness. And so to hire someone else to do that, you can do that if you feel comfortable with that. With some people, they just feel like morally that that's not something that they will do. But even if they do feel morally good about it, it's really hard to hire people that can do this as well or better than you and they're not doing it on their own. I've tried so long. So I've done this, this YouTube channel really started, say, three years ago in my house with my phone. And for maybe the last two years, I've really tried to avoid doing the work. So I'm like, guys, all right, here's how we get other people to knock on doors. And then here's how we're going to get another person. And most of the times, there's things you can actually outsource. And I can talk about that. A lot of the times, though, it's like, I ultimately will end up doing it and I like it. Or there's things, like I heard from Joe Rogan, someone who was familiar. Joe Rogan is his own scheduler. Yeah. You know about this? Yeah. Well, I think Chris Williamson said it on this show too. Chris Williamson. Oh yeah. Him. So he's like scheduling. I heard that and I was like, oh, that's so interesting. And there's things that we're each uniquely skilled to do. And I would say for mine, it's like I can get access potentially to some of these billionaires, which is what, it's funny. I've been on a lot of shows and no one asks at all about knocking on doors or the content I create. They're only asking about the billionaire stuff, which is kind of interesting mm -hmm. to notice what people observe, but the team is the one that does all the prep work. The team is the one that's like, before we even get going, your titles, the thumbnails, here's all the questions, ask in this order, don't go out of order, make sure you do it in this specific area. So the team really preps that. So I'm kind of just doing the parts I really enjoy. On the social media side for content, I've had different agencies. So I've used, 
two agencies. And what's interesting, what everyone can do is send one of your tweets to someone you trust or you like. And Sam Parr, who's a good buddy of mine, he would always text me. He's like, this is such dog shit. I know it's not you. <laughs> he would always do that. He would be like, I know you're faking it, bro. Don't be a bitch. And I was like, okay, okay, it's 9 a.m., calm down. But he was right. And then I would read it and I was like, this just doesn't sound like me. And so yes, you can create brand voice. Yes, you can create you know, your brand essence. And maybe AI and some of that can kind of create a variation of it. But ultimately, we're, we're our own tastemakers. So finally, I found bringing it in-house. So there's a 17-year-old kid named Jay Great name. and Sylvie that do a lot of the rough drafts of the content. And then I'm the final editor, which is just like a restaurant. Like the chef doesn't come up the dishes. All the other chefs do. And then they finalize it and approve it. Yeah. So I've tried some of this too. If we use that same analogy, it's still hard because if you hire a sous chef who's like, here's the meal I made and you taste it and you're like, this is terrible. I can't even fix it. I have to start it over from scratch. Like it's so hard to find people that are even good enough that they can match the brand voice so that it's just tweaking rather than like, I got to strip this down to the absolute studs because then that becomes just like <laughs> doing this duplicative work. You're basically doing the same thing over again. And a lot of like this brand voice stuff, it's a moment in time. Like I have an experience, I'm very pessimistic on this right now, but I have an experience, somebody who can, can like change with you over time so that it doesn't feel stale three months from now because they're still acting as you, who you were three months ago. Yeah. When you see Brent voice, which is really funny, what you're saying is like, can someone else be Jay Klaus? Right. Which no one can. (laughs) I mean, it's just, and which is also your advantage, right? So when you create content, think about what's in your, no one else really only a hundred people work at AppSumo. Right. So that's an advantage and everyone has advantages. You know, maybe it's geographical, maybe it's professional, maybe it's your skills or experiences. The thing you can think about that I think about with content is that we were doing emails for our book launch and I wanted the emails written and what's the point of each email. And so one of the emails was written and it was, hey, Noah did marketing on the book. Here's three things about the marketing. Go buy the book. And I saw that and I was like, oh, I can't send that. And I want to send an email where even if you don't buy the book, you're like, this email is fire. Yeah, This is just a fire. And if this email is so good, then the book must be good. And so that did take me and the team sitting together and saying, y'all, like, this is good. Let me share some stories because I think stories is what sells. And let's try to reframe it better. And so I did a Zoom meeting. I think it was like a 30-minute meeting with the two writers, Jay and Sylvie with Tommy's assistants. And then by giving them a little bit more of the pushback on stories and framework, then they came back with the final product again. And I was like, okay, yeah, this is excellent. I think the other way that it's worked well with Jay and Sylvie, because they don't have my stories, not all of them, but they can do graphics, right? Like mm-hmm, they can do graphics mm-hmm. of things I've talked about, mm-hmm. or they can repurpose yep. things I talk. So I've talked about law of 100, or I talk about how, you know, getting your first dollar is important. So then they can say, all right, what are other stories out there or things that we can do to complement that as well as they can pull a lot of things from podcasts and YouTubes and even just working with me that that creates the actual content itself. After a quick break, Noah and I dive deep into his book writing experience. So stick around. We'll be right back. If you know me, you know how much I believe in memberships. My membership is the core of my business and earning an income directly from your audience is one of the most sustainable ways for you to become a professional creator too. So I want to tell you about today's sponsor, Uscreen. Uscreen is a beautiful all-in-one platform that helps content creators earn a living from their videos by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. You can host private live streams for your members, build an on-demand catalog of premium content, and Uscreen gives you a community hub to interact with your members too. They can access your community from their mobile phone, so your membership is right there in their pocket. With a Uscreen account, you get video hosting, an out-of-the-box website, 
full payment and subscription management, and plenty of third-party integrations too. And Uscreen makes it easy to get set up. You get access to powerful website themes that are fully brandable with no coding skills required. Uscreen will even provide a dedicated success manager for you. Just about anyone that wants to make money from their content can do it with Uscreen. It's perfect for coaches, authors, influencers, and entrepreneurs in just about any niche. Right now, Uscreen is used by creators in fitness, education, news, kids entertainment, and more. That includes Yoga with Adrian and Creator Now, just to name a couple. Uscreen is the platform for building a video membership site that is great for generating a sustainable income for professional creators. If you create video content for your audience, I highly recommend checking it out. If you're interested in learning more about Uscreen, visit uscreen.link slash j. That's U-S-C-R-E-E-N dot link slash j and let them know that I sent you. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Last year, my wife and I started talking about her joining the business full time. This is a huge decision, not just for the business, but for our marriage. My wife, being the very smart and thoughtful woman that she is, suggested that we proactively sign up for therapy as a couple to help us communicate better before we started working together. It really helped us have better language to describe how we're feeling and listen to one another, which generally lowers the intensity of any conversation. Now, I had never been in therapy before, but here's something that I didn't expect. It didn't just help our dialogue, but it helped my inner monologue too. The way I understand my own experience has changed based on the tools that I got from therapy. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, so it's convenient, it fits your schedule, and you can be in the comfort of your own home. Just fill out a short questionnaire and you'll get matched with a licensed therapist. They even make it easy to switch therapists if it doesn't feel like a fit. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash creator today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash creator. And now back to my conversation with Noah Kagan. Okay, well, I want to I want to transition into the book process and... I guess the starting point for that, I know you've been working on this for four years. So what was going on four years ago that you said, you know what, I'm going to write a book? Everyone's got a book in them, right? Everyone's got a story. And guess what? We're the authors of our own story, which is so cool. We're going to realize you have that power. When COVID hit and I was making my first YouTube video on my phone, I was like, I'm going to do a book. Because I, you know, I think it, I was around 36 or so. I thought I've done it enough times. I've helped enough people. I've put out this article on Tim Ferriss's blog that's been validated enough where I'm like, this stuff works. So I wrote a book proposal called The Challenge. And it was all these challenges that you can do to get confidence, overcome fear, overcome rejection, and be able to have success in life. And I sent it to an agent who's James Clear's agent. Her name is Lisa Demona. And she said, yeah, this is trash. <laughs> and I was like, what do you mean? I got like, don't I have social media and like a YouTube? And the YouTube is small at the time. And she's like, yeah, but this is like, you're not serious. And the, the, yeah, the reality was I wasn't at that point. And that's a great moment. You know, in all, in all of our lives, it's like when you get rejected, which we all will face some failure or rejection, it's a test of whether you want it or not. And I, I thought about it. I've always wanted to have a book. And I always wish I had this book when I was younger. And so that was a moment for me to decide the character, me, how I want to proceed in the story. And I was like, all right, well, what do I need to do to now face this rejection and overcome it? Because I, I do want a book. And I, I've got one book in me. This is one. This is the first one in the sequel are right here. So then I spent a year working on a proposal. And this is available for all of us. I think that's what this book really is teaching people. It's not being rich is cool, yes, and all that stuff. But it's really that we can do things we didn't think we could do. 
And we could live lives that we didn't think we could. That's what the book is about. For me, what the proposal was like, I, I went and then hired, you know, we're not all the best in something. We're the best in something, but not everything. And so I found this guy, David, who wrote James Clear's proposal. Hey, I wanted to pop in here real quick to say that right now, Noah is talking about David Maldauer. This is a man who has spent more than a decade in book publishing, acquiring and editing best-selling books for Penguin, St. Martin's Press, McGraw-Hill, and Amazon Publishing New York. He's been on the show. We went in-depth into the world of publishing and what makes a great proposal. So if you want to hear that, listen to episode number 163 of this podcast next, which I've linked in the show notes. And I paid him some money and I said, David, let's work on this together. Because he is literally, he used to buy proposals for Penguin. Now he's kind of famous for yeah. writing proposals. So I worked on it with him for a year. And so that, that was really like the impetus where I was like, I've always wanted this book. I've dreamed of it. And I felt after so many years of doing it myself, finally doing it, helping others do it. I'm like, yeah, I feel confident that I can teach people how to do this. And the proposal then was really the start of that journey. So here's something I'm thinking about. First of all, I'm about to interrogate you on why you went traditional versus self-publishing with the reach that you have. So prepare for that. Uh, <laughs> second of all, Please. as I think about the world of self-publishing, I'm wondering if the book proposal process is still worth doing as a way of clarifying the concept itself. Like if you did not do that proposal, do you think the book itself would have been radically different? Yes. I mean, the first book was called The Challenge, right? And, and there's a difference between a tweet and a book. And there's a difference between a, a book and a great book. And I, I like to think this is a great book. But the proposal really makes you think, and publishers don't care about your book in, in some sense. They just care about the sellability. <laughs> like nowadays, the people that are getting books bought for millions of dollars, it's really about their reach. It's not necessarily if they can tell a good story. There are books that, that can, you don't have to have reach, but they're just so good that people talk about them. And that's ultimately what sells books. One, get validation on your ideas before you even think about proposal, right? Put out tweets. Did this tweet go viral? Like every time I've talked about how to create a business very quickly, people like it. I'm like, all right, that's kind of interesting. And then the proposal was really solidifying, like how can this be a concept as well as how does this get marketed and differentiated in a market of, there's a lot of business books out there. I have them in my shelf, <laughs> you know? And there's so much content out there. And so what makes this one different and really thinking about it deeply, which is the difference I'd say between a self-published and a traditional where to be a traditionally published book, it takes a long time. And I guess I've always equated to be in the, what's the major leagues versus the minor leagues. And that's why you went traditional publishing ultimately? Probably honestly for ego. Hmm. <laughs> if I'm, if in all, in all seriousness, you know, and if you think about it in a lot of regards in today's day, which we're in 2024, Name two books that are self-published that are like mega bestsellers. Name two. So number one is the Bible. That was self-published. <laughs> What's well, like a second or third one? Like maybe Hermosy a little bit, maybe Pathless Path. But even yeah. those like, probably not, right? Yeah. Okay, now let's name published books, everything else. And for me, I, I wanted to, I've done two self-published books, which not a lot of people read. And, and I think ultimately it's, there's some function of like, you're taking it serious. Not to say you can't with the self-published, and I think that's a great approach, and I think that can be more popular over time. But in, in where we're at today, and is that there's not as many traditionally published books, and if it is, like you're serious about having this succeed because it it's three years for one book that's not going to change. Like if we've already printed thirty thousand copies of it, it's it's pretty much set in stone, and also is fact check like hell, and it's copy edited like hell, and it's got all these people that have looked into it, which is different than a self-published book, and, and both are good. I I just wanted to swing for the fences. I think I've done enough singles that I was like, if I'm going to go for it, let's go all the way. 
I want to zoom in even more to the the timeline Please. and the aspects of this because you strike me as someone who's very honest. So I just like to hear, you know, through that four years while you're doing this, what parts of this were easier than you expected? Which Ooh. parts of it sucked more than you thought it would? Like, what were the surprises to you in this process? So for anyone out there, you can Google book proposals. And if you ask me super nicely, maybe I'll send you mine. But even that, like, that's kind of a coveted thing. So like James Clear's or Tim Ferriss's proposals are like very valuable if you can get access to them. And I would say for people out there, find people early. So when I was getting started in this, I was lucky enough that I've known Tim for 20 years. I called him and I said, hey, tell me about it. And he's like, book is everything. Like if you're going to do it, it's hard. It's not as easy as it seems. And same with James, who you, he's got a lot of content out there. In terms of the emotional roller coaster, writing a proposal is fun because you're like, writing the, my first proposal called The Challenge was fun because I'm like, here's the book and I'm just kind of goofing around, right? It's a hobby versus a professional. And that was really fun. And then when Lisa rejected me, I was a little sad. I was like, what do you mean, Lisa? I thought, like, that were kind of cool. She's like, you're just not serious about it. Now with David, who wrote the proposal with me, it's kind of nice because I'm just kind of dumping whatever I'm thinking on him and he just knows how to format it in a way that people couldn't purchase. So that really wasn't too hard. And then when we had a, so what you do, and you're familiar with this, I'm guessing, is that then you take this proposal and you, you pitch it. Like you do a presentation to different publishing houses. That I took so not seriously. I'm just like goofing off. I'm like, yeah, this book is, I think it's going to sell pretty damn great. You know, like we're going to do this dollar challenge thing and coffee challenge. And I, you know, Tim Ferriss is a buddy. I'm a, it's going to sell well. And I just kind of goofed off. And I, I remember trying to sell it for about a hundred thousand dollars advance. And for me personally, I'm not trying to get rich. Not, I'm not trying. I will not get rich on the book at all. And I just didn't take that as seriously. And it turned into a bidding war, hmm. which I was, I was pretty surprised with. And I, I was like, Lisa, take the first one. It's fine. She's like, no, no, no. We can negotiate. <laughs> so, oh, yeah, yeah. Do that. And we got this like crazy offer, almost a million dollars from Penguin, which means that they're like, they're serious about the book. And for me as well, obviously, I, I'm having fun. I wasn't totally goofing off the whole presentations, but it was more... Like, yeah, we want this to do well. We're going to bet on you. And then it's for all of us, business is a bet on ourselves. So for me, it was like, shit, all right, I'm going to take this book seriously as I planned to. That was my initial intent. And I didn't, to be clear, when I talked to some of these early authors, I was like, I'm going to sell a million copies. And they laugh. Like, this is what's crazy. A million views on YouTube now is, is like becoming worth a million dollars, which is like middle class now, which is kind of crazy, I think. Yeah. And selling 100,000 books is impressive. Totally. Which people don't realize that. Like people, one, to buy a book is now kind of hard. And then two, to read a book and then to take action on a book is even harder. So it was good to get that insights very early on. But I did take it seriously. And my goal wasn't how many books can I sell? It was, can I write a book that I'm proud of and then I can get a thousand reviews? So that was very early on something I identified that I wasn't inspired or motivated by trying to sell a certain quantity, which I thought was just a little bit arbitrary. But I thought if I can get a thousand true fans or a thousand people that are like excited to leave a review, that would be something that I think then, then subsequently would impact a lot more people. So after the book sell, I was pretty stoked. I was like, wow, I just got this fat check. But then you realize this is what that's not talked about. One, your agent takes 15%, which I thought was well worth it. She's phenomenal. She's my second mom. Then you don't get that money up front. You get it in quarters. Uh. Yeah. So you get it when you sign the agreement, when you turn your first manuscript, the day the book launches and a year after the launch. But for myself, I realized like I'm a good marketer, I'm a good storyteller, I'm good at starting businesses. I'm not a great author. So I wanted to hire the best business writer in the world. So I cold messaged Tall and then he's a shit ton of money. And then I was mad at him. This is, there's another show we can talk about. I was so mad at him. I was like, you ripped me off Tall. You screwed me. I was being a victim. And uh, 
That took a bunch of money. I had to put my own money up front for that because they don't pay you all of it. But Tall mm -hmm. expects it, you know, in his own timeline. So that was definitely a learning moment. Now, after we uh, got the deal and the emotions with Tall, I would say started off as, wow, I'm a fraud. This book is totally going to suck. Because we went into the woods for a week working on the book and the outline. We took the proposal and Tall literally was like lightly poking at the proposal. Like, okay, so let's walk through this example you just gave. Yeah, that's bullshit. And then let's go through another. I'm like, and he's like, that's bullshit. I was like, oh my God, this book is totally going to flop. I just read like, I'm a flop. Uh, I have so many questions. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's true for all. You asked about the emotional thing. I felt yeah. very insecure with him. And he, I find it's very helpful to be around people that challenge me. I just like it. I love yeah. it. Like, tell me feedback, tell me what's wrong. And that's how you make a great thing. And so be with tall was like, wow, this guy. And he was, I think about five times more than every other collaborator. And he, part of his agreement is his name's on the book. Mm -hmm. All these other ghostwriters, which he's not a ghostwriter. He's a collaborator. There's a difference. Tell me about that difference. If I had to give another kitchen example, and I think kitchens are good because we all eat. A lot of the other ghostwriters were waiters or waitresses and tall was a chef. And what I mean by that is if you go to these like writing agencies, which there are some and they're not, it could work out great. But like, let's take David Goggins as another example. He worked with this agency. Yeah. He worked with Tucker Max. Yeah. Scribe. He didn't just work with like their low writer. He worked with their elite, super high paid. Tucker's a phenomenal writer, phenomenal storyteller. Whether you like him or not, he's phenomenal. I like that guy. And so a lot of the other people, there's no shade on them. And maybe they got better over time. But when I interviewed all these different collaborators, it did seem like one, show me the writing you've done. And I'd read their writing. And I'm like, this is fine. But I've read Tall's books, never split the difference. I'm like, these are fucking great. This is my dream person. And secondly, he's not just saying, okay, I'll write what you want. I'm going to write what the reader wants to read. And that was a noticeable difference. So instead of just taking my order, he's like, no, let me taste the dish. I'm going to help you craft a better dish. And that, that's what I wanted. I wanted someone who, what I candidly wanted, I wanted someone to do all the work so I could avoid the hard work and then just take all the credit. Hmm. <laughs> I, I know that sounds silly and it's kind of like, but that's like one of these things that's like the embarrassing truth inside that I'm okay well, putting it's out. The entrepreneurial, it's the entrepreneurial part of you. It's not different than Delegate. saying like, there are parts of this that I want to do and there are parts of this that I don't want to do. I don't want to do customer service. I don't want to do sales calls. You know, you're saying yes. I, I want the book. I'm sure you had input on like the design and the marketing plan and these examples and things, but you're saying there are parts of this that like any business, I don't want to do book as a product. There's a difference between an author and a writer. Say more. Anyone can write words on a page. Anyone can write a tweet. Anyone could write copy. But an author is someone who can tell a unique story that people want to read. And the amount of books that actually succeed is very small. Same with probably a lot of content. There's distributions around these things. And so for me, I wanted to stack the deck as much as possible for this book to succeed. And I've tested the material very early that I was like, okay, the content's good, but how do I turn a blog post into a book? And why not work with someone who's literally the best in the world at that? And so at all costs, it was, was willing to work with them. And the early stage, and this is something I think is important for all content creators, you have to get started and you have to evolve for everyone, right? My first video was a phone. Now there's a three camera setup in here. You know, I got like right cam, left Ooh, cam, center ah. cam. You know, this is a $25,000 plus studio, but it started with just a phone. And so I wanted to work with the best person possible, which is tall. And early on, it was him kind of unpacking the proposal and recognizing how much of it was not going to hold up. Mm-hmm. And that was, that was very, made me self-conscious, but it also made the book better. People don't care, really. People only care about their own problems. And I think that's important in content and business. Like no one cares if I spent a hundred years writing this book. No one pays you for effort. They pay you or they watch you if you solve something for them. 
Totally. And we wanted a book to help people on their entrepreneurial journey that would get them in 48 hours to change their life. And we were very big on what's the story, what's the aha. And if you read this book after you finish it, will you have that chance? And we believe we finished it. We believe we can do that. But that was not pretty. And I think that's another point not talked about is that when you see the finished product, you're like, wow, they must have like sipped champagne all day. And Tall has this magic formula. He does doop, boop, boop, boop. And that's just not the case, right? It's messy on the inside. And I, I think people can be okay with that. Like, hey, it's gonna be messy, guess what? But you can edit it and then you can edit it and then you can edit it. And it's the edited final product that actually is what matters. So after we got the first outline in that weekend, when it finished the weekend, I felt relieved. Like, okay, this is not as bad as I thought because we have to take what was good and now make it great with the proposal. When you had the outline in the proposal, how closely did you end up following that initial outline, would you say? Do you want to go get it? I want to get it only because I want to share like the chapter names and, and uh -huh. the structure of what the final book is compared to what the proposal is. And I think it's pretty Let's interesting. I love that. Let's do it. It's a, a trip down memory lane, J. Klaus. Love this. By the way, one of the things that was super helpful and tall and just uh, I talked about it on my show, tall was very big on studying the greats. So I went and mm -hmm. read 30 books that are in our space or close to our space and then documented book reports about the layout, the mm -hmm. words, the phrases, the stories. And then we use a lot of that. When you read our book, you're like, oh, wow, that, this book feels like another book. And it's like, yeah, literally just go look at the best books and see how you can imitate yeah. them and improve on them. I've heard that about titles too. There are some title formats that have been repeated time and time again, like the blank of blank, you know, Mark Manson's book, The, the Subtle Art. I heard him talk about this and he listed off like a bunch of titles in that framework that have worked pretty well. Yeah, I remember talking to James Clear years before the book and he was like, I tested 300 covers and that stuck with me. I think when, and let me be specific here, people see Atomic Habits, which is a best-selling book. I don't know if it's the century, but of the decade for sure. And they're like, oh yeah, that guy just like wrote a book and it's a good book. And they don't know what happened in the kitchen. Like he tested 300 covers. He tested the subtitle. He tested that the first chapter has three major takeaways. Go read the book again, you'll see. Then other people write books, and yes, it can work other ways, but when I put together Million Dollar Week, and I was like, hmm, I'm gonna test 50 different covers. Once I found the winning cover via Facebook ads, then I tested the color variation of the cover. Then I tested mocking it up in bookstores and mocking it up in Amazon. And that's how we ended up on green, because it's also my favorite color, but this is the ultimate version that you don't see business books in green, which mm. is very strange. The very publisher interesting. Does, it's very a interesting take bad away. luck. Well. Go look on your shelf. I mean, I can send you the picture, but if you go and look at a bookshelf Nothing. in Barnes & Noble or Amazon, yeah, or go to Amazon in the business book category, there's zero green books, which is funny because it's money. You so would think weird. it's green. Yeah, because there's like, there, there are trends in this too. Like we've seen like when you had orange spines show up, suddenly we had like a wave of orange and we've seen it with yellow too. And I think we've seen it with blue. I have not seen a green business book. Well, dude, it's funny enough, true story. They had to sit me down with the head of Penguin and been like, hey, we don't want to do green. Do you want to really? do it? Sit me down. I was like, what? One, it, there's your intuition about what you like. And all my brand has been green, but also I tested it. So I felt really confident that I'm like, this is what the people want too. Yeah. Do they have data to say like, this is why green is bad? I figured this would be your face. Like, I, I don't, I haven't heard like anyone say the publisher brought me this data. And that was a compelling story. Like publisher has intuition. They have like a lot of implicit data for sure. But I haven't seen anyone be like, Publisher brought me this. It was very compelling. It was very data-oriented. <laughs> I mean, if you're Matthew McConaughey, you could write anything and people will read it. <laughs> Just like, you're Matthew McConaughey. Like, it doesn't even have to be good. It could be in, like, not even English. 
But when you're necessarily maybe not him, like myself or others, potentially, I think you can think of it more as a tech company or as a business. Like, how would you run a business? The way I'm running Million Dollar Weekend is the same way I run AppSumo. It's the same way that I've started all these other businesses. It's the same approach, which is make sure people want it, go test that, build out a small army of people that are excited about it, and then you can scale that. It's the same thing. So if people are saying, wow, that's good marketing, and I like how the book is going, it's the same way you can run a business. And for me, that's how I approached it, with this cover, with the title, even the subtitle, the original subtitle, build a business so quickly there's no time to chicken out. And a lot of times you're like, well, that's not bad. But then we tested it with polls on Twitter. Then we also tested it with my email list. We emailed out subtitles, and I just saw which one people actually clicked. Not with the one they voted on, which one they clicked. And that became the surprisingly simple way to launch a seven-figure business in 48 hours. I love this. So you mentioned James. James lives here in Columbus, so I get to see him every now and then. And the last time we talked, we were catching up, and he once again, he said this to me multiple times, said that he's always identified as an entrepreneur. So like he very much approaches mm. his book. Like you would think James Clear, again, one of the best books of the century, definitely decade. You would think he would say, I'm an author. He has always said to me, I identify as an entrepreneur. So I hadn't heard him say before that he tested 300 covers, but it doesn't surprise me in the least. Yeah, success leaves clues. That's I think a Tony Robbins line who he copied from someone else. And so it's interesting looking at what we put together. You know, you put together when you do a book proposal, your marketing plan right? Who's the person reading this book? And then how do you think you'll promote it? And it's interesting. The marketing plan is the same thing I teach in Million Dollar Weekend, where it's like, all right, I'm going to promote it with my own assets. So Noah Kagan, AppSumo, YouTube. I'm going to work with people who I've helped over the past decade. And then there's new people like yourself who we haven't interacted with, but I'm going to make friends with. And if it makes sense, I'd love to come do something collaborative with. And it's literally the same playbook I wrote here. The chapter title. So this is funny. The first chapter was called Rise to the Challenge. Chapter two is called the customer first business. Chapter three, ideas are easy. Chapter four is called customers. Chapter five, goal for growth. Chapter six, double down. Chapter seven, you don't need a website. Chapter eight, you don't need paid ads. Chapter nine, find allies. And chapter 10, now give it away. So what was fascinating about it, if you actually read the chapter titles in the book, two things are interesting. One, when we actually try to find per chapter a story and a takeaway, it didn't make sense in that order. So thinking really about the linear story of your book. And then the second part is because we do a lot of YouTube, we tested the chapter titles. Mm. So I went back to our team and I was like, here's these chapter titles. And the ordering, this is what's interesting. The ordering here, when we try to work with people and go through it ourselves, it just didn't make sense. Like you don't need paid ads. It's like, that's not a whole chapter. So the chapter became, we broke it out into three chapters, which is social media is for growth, email is for profit, and then the growth machine. The chapter one originally was rise to the challenge, but no one, you know, I don't know if people want to be challenged, but through the process, we realized like, oh shit, we need to help people start. So the first chapter is called just effing start. And you have parts here in the final book, at least you have part one, start it, part two, build it, part three, grow it. Did you have three parts in the proposal as well? Not at all. Not at all. I mean, there's definitely a lot of core concepts and this is what the beauty of working with tall was having someone who's an expert in storytelling. Like, you know, most books, it's really actually simple. What's the unique thing you're telling about the book that no one else is telling about? And then what are stories that really reinforce it that are ideally unique or memorable, mm. right? And if you think about James' book, James didn't come up with any of these ideas. I don't mean that in a mean way. And I, in my book, I don't know if I even came up with all of these unique ideas, but he told them and packaged them in a way that was different than everybody else. And his book had three crazy concepts, the 1% better every day, put your shoes out, I don't remember the third one, but those are the two I definitely remember. And that's what everyone else does. And that's why it's sold, you know, over 10 million copies. 
I like this because the point that I wanted to see if was true was that the outline that you put together for your proposal, if you do a proposal, it's probably going to change a lot and that's okay. And you shouldn't stress out too, too much about, oh, this isn't exactly what I had in the proposal. It sounds like that's part of the process is evolving this. Yeah. I mean, business is recognizing what the customer wants. So we took the proposal and we ripped it apart. And by having an outside opinion, which was tall, put it together back in a new order, there was just a lot of ways of thinking about it that he helped recognize. Like he was a good mirror. He was a great mirror for me where he said, you know, you do a lot of experiments. I'm like, what do you mean experiments? He's like, yeah, you're just trying a lot of things. I'm like, ah, so that became a core concept of the book, which is how do you do experiments which fail? Because failing mm -hmm. as an experiment is not bad, whereas most people don't recognize it, but they haven't started a lot of things in life or business specifically because they're afraid. But if you experiment, it fails. Okay, that's a cool way to reframe it. Or an early person who named Mitchell Cohen, who is my ideal reader. He has a day job at AppSumo, and he's always wanted to have a side business, maybe at AppSumo, maybe not. And so he, early on, I was we were sharing all this with him very quickly, and he was like, Noah, you always are about right now. Like, what's the thing you could do right now? And don't worry about how. And that was like one of these moments where it's like, oh, shit. Like in chapter one, we realized that how do people do things right now and not worry about the how? So now, not how. I would say one of the, there's a lot more in terms of the emotions in the story. But again, how do you take the feedback from data or your customer or your own intuition to make better decisions? We were giving the book to beta readers. And this is towards the end of it. And we did a survey, which is like, where were you? What, what in the book? And some other questions. But the specific question, which is like, what's the one thing now that's changed your life from this book, if anything? They all said now, not how. Hmm. I'm like, what are you talking about? And I think we have to sometimes recognize, even though we're our own customer, we don't understand the words yeah. or the experience of our end customer. And for them, it was realizing what could they actually do today? They don't need to wait till next week. And so it was like, oh. I'm seeing all the time, like things I'm learning about packaging from YouTube. The concept of packaging applies to literally everything. It's one of those like fractal concepts where like you packaged your chapters differently in this final book. That phrase, now not how, is a packaging of the idea, what can we do as quickly as possible and not worry about how we're going to do it? You know, like packaging just makes everything more compelling yes. and palatable in every form. Yeah, it's, you know, with YouTube videos, every one of our video has lots of titles. You're only seeing the final title, mm -hmm. right? And now there's tools that you can test it. And I even saw it. So when I had this, the book is based on a course, which is based on my own experience, which is based on the Tim Ferriss article. And we originally called the course, How to Make Your First Buck. You know this? No, I don't know this. Oh, so we, we originally had this course. And again, just get the book. You don't need the course. But it was How to Make Your First Dollar. Because I was like, that's what people need. They never make a million because they never make one. And then we tested it. We changed the title to, we A-B tested it, How to Make a $1,000 a Month Business. But I'm like, yo, people don't, they're not going to make a thousand. They need to make $1. But we tested it and it doubled the conversion rate. Doubled. Mm. And again, if it wasn't true or we didn't like it, that's a whole separate story. I think there's a lot of things that are, frankly, lies. And so you have to be mindful of, is this true for yourself? Like, can you, you know, be okay with that for yourself? And is it honest? And it is. And it's also the realization, holy shit, people do want to be sold the outcome and the dream, not necessarily the work. After one last break, we talk about the cost of hiring a ghostwriter and Noah's plan for marketing Million Dollar Weekend. So don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. This episode is sponsored by Podcast Movement. For the past decade, Podcast Movement has organized the world's largest gathering of podcasters, featuring thousands of attendees, hundreds of breakout sessions, panels, and workshops, plus the largest trade show in podcasting. Podcast Movement helps podcasters of all experience levels create, grow, and profit from their show. 
It's suitable for beginners, but you'll also have the opportunity to meet some of the biggest names in the industry. I've been to several podcast movement events, and not only is the programming incredible, but the culture and vibe are incredible too. It attracts thoughtful, empathetic, and collaborative people, which makes sense when you think about the medium of podcasting. Podcast Movement hosts two events per year. The first just wrapped up, but their flagship conference is happening August 19th through the 22nd in Washington, D.C. Attendees have the freedom to choose their own adventure across several different stages throughout the four-day event, not to mention dozens of amazing networking events, parties, and the expo hall floor. Tracks include podcast creation, video and live streaming, industry professional, plus several stages of curated programming from some of the top companies in podcasting. It's truly a unique event, and if you are a podcaster, I cannot recommend it enough. Right now, tickets are available at super duper early bird pricing. And as a Creator Science listener, you can save $50 on top of that by visiting podcastmovement.com science. That's podcastmovement.com science. And now please enjoy the rest of my conversation with Noah Kagan. So it sounds like you spoke to, even if you're set on, I want Tal to be my collaborator. It sounds like you spoke to a fair amount of people. We haven't talked about this concept on the show at all. If I'm thinking about having a ghostwriter or a collaborator, what type of cost am I looking at? Or should I be thinking like what range? I've actually, it's been interesting doing books. This is crazy too, by the way, Jay, when you go to a party or I don't know if you have people out, they're like, what are you doing? If you say you're an author, there's still some prestige about being an author. It's like a weird thing. Like you say you're a podcaster or a YouTuber. I used to say I'm a YouTuber. People always kind of chuckle at me. <laughs> mm-hmm, <laughs> I'm like, mm-hmm. I'm an entrepreneur. Yeah, just kind of interesting. And then how do we want to see ourselves? And so anyone can be an author. You know, I, I do think you have to think what's the unique thing you're telling and what are the stories that can complement it. And, and Tal was very good at really diving deep on that. Now, there's different price points. So there are, you know, Dan Andrews, our friend, he has a coach. So there's writing coaches out there that'll just support you and your outline and your work. And I think that's true for a lot of businesses. You can sell someone a book, you can sell someone a course, or you can do it for them. And each of those has different price points. Now there's writing agencies, so Scribe and some of these other ones. I think they charge, we paid for it at AppSumo actually, and we never even released it. I think we paid 40K for Scribe and we never released the book. So I think that that's there. And now these ghostwriters, and again, if you're busy, if you've got a family, you got stuff going on, it makes sense to hire someone who's better than you at this. They charge 100K. It's about 100K. Wow. And then I, I won't say tall, that's for him to share, but he's a lot more than that. Yeah. And he takes a cut of the book and he has his name on the book, which I frankly liked. I want him to have skin in the game. Yeah. So that that's the different cost levels. I think just a coach is going to be like 10 to 15K. Talk to me about your marketing strategy and marketing plan because you're a great marketer and now the book is written you have a finished product you have like the biggest advance i've ever heard i'm sure that people have bigger i just haven't talked to them on the show so you got to sell a lot of product what is your marketing plan for the book so i want to finish you asked about the overall journey i would say the best marketing for any business is a great product right like people you're you're big on youtube and you have all this thumbnail stuff so people are like i need to optimize my thumbnail and like your video sucks still (laughs) Like if you have an AVD that no one's watching, your average duration that no one watches, it doesn't matter how great your thumbnail is. And that's true for all these businesses. You can get them to come pay, look at it. But if the actual substance doesn't matter to your specific customer, like when we make YouTube videos, it's always for an underdog in their business journey. That's every single time. I don't blow up Ferraris. I don't put balloons in houses. I don't get stuck under water or under caves unless it helps someone on their business journey. So the final part I have to share is that to really perfect the book, I would say, and for ourselves, was our beta readers. 
this transformed the book. So when Tal and I finished the book, we had this outline in the beginning. Every month we do a new chapter. And at the end of it, it was 65,000 words. And I, I didn't love the book, if I was honest. I was like, but I thought this guy's the best in the world. Isn't, aren't I supposed to love it? And it's like, no, and that's okay. Everyone is their own taste maker, and that's great to embrace. So for me, I brought on these beta readers. I brought on 200 of them. And I gave 20 people each a chapter separately so there wasn't crossover. And that was the probably biggest transformation I, to take the book from pretty good, I think would have done well, to I'm proud of it. And these people are like, wow, this is something. And that took the book from 65,000 words down to 45,000 words. Wow. Which is massive in book world. And it was really identifying and listening to the customer, which are people aspiring to have businesses, and seeing the marketing is that making the product so good people want to tell others. And so at the end of the book, it was like, wow, now this actually ties all together. And then every weekend for six months, I had five people read the book with me and go through it. And then I had someone live at my house for 48 hours and go through the book. So Crazy. to get to the marketing, I was confident that the book worked and it would make an impact. So I think that, again, that, that's where, again, I know people want to hear marketing. I'll, I'll share the marketing, like all the secret stuff. But again, it's like a lot of times my marketing is just because I have products people want. Mint wasn't really hard to market. People want a free thing that makes you more money. Absolutely.com, insane deals on awesome software tools. It's not that hard to market it, right? Just make sure you get great deals and tell people about it. You don't have to tell that many people because they'll, they'll spread it. Yeah, I mean, I you can answer the question in whatever way you think is like the best way to answer it. You don't have to give me like specific things. Yeah, because now I kind of want to drill in on this. When you had these beta readers, at what point in the process did you send it to them? It sounds like you said like first manuscript is done essentially. So I was, I was ignorant or naive. And it's likely because I'm doing AppSumo and I'm doing YouTube and I'm trying to have a book and I'm trying to be president as a boyfriend that I'm not paying attention to everything, which is also okay. So I try to have CEOs for each of my projects or each of my businesses. So Alona runs AppSumo or Tall was running the book or Jeremy runs the YouTube channel. So when I turn in the manuscript, they're like, yeah, you can totally change it again. And I thought I could, but they're like, you have four weeks to make any final changes. Hmm. And I basically procrastinated for three weeks because I was like, well, I'm busy with other stuff. And then when I finally read the book after the first manuscript, where I finally fully read the whole thing start to finish, I was like, this is not me. I can't tell people about this. And I'm looking at the, the beta readers. I mean, them, and I asked Neville Medora to help me out with this, transformed the book completely. I can even pull up some of their examples where, again, this is the same thing you can do in all businesses. Like, ask your customer. And again, you make the final call but chapter four, we originally called it, the latest version was called Ride the Wave. <laughs> and someone left a comment. I don't know what the hell that means. What wave are you riding? And this is just feedback from people that we put in a Google Doc. Again, everything was free. And for these beta readers, this is stuff in all businesses. I didn't go and email the entire list. I didn't go put ads. I didn't go do all this complicated stuff. I literally just DM'd people and said, hey, I'm looking for beta readers. Oh, you went so, outbound. You, you like curated first. You chose people. The bigger takeaway is do it manually. Like Paul Graham says all this stuff that no one does. They love the quotes and they'll retweet the shit, but they don't do it. Make something people want, do things that don't scale. And if you actually do it, everything is easy. So the content, I was like, I know it's good and I'm happy with that. And I do know they want it, but do things that don't scale. Literally, I posted a tweet. Hey, does anyone want to be on my beta team? Just DM me. And I manually DM'd every single person back. And some people were like, why would you ask me for this? Why don't you give it for me for free? And I was like, because I want people who will take it seriously. So I'm looking for you to pre-order the book. And so I got rejected, mm -hmm. which is what I teach in the book as well. And so I was able to build a, I think the first 200 people were the really early readers. 
And most of them, you know, were people in my audience, but I messaged them. And again, you don't need big audiences for big successes. And it, it was fascinating. So many things I thought made sense were obvious were just not clear to the end people. This is interesting because my first assumption was, all right, send an email to your audience, say I'm looking for 200 beta readers. You're probably going to get a bias for people who love your stuff the most. And that might leave you in a position where they aren't as honest or like specific. You know what I mean? Like you might get people that are just like, this was great, but it sounds like you got some like very constructive, very pointed feedback. And that's probably a function of the way you selected these readers. There's a few things I would comment here. One, you have to prompt people for feedback. Like it's like this, Hey, Hey Jay, give me a referral. People always do that. I'm like, that's so hard. Jay, I'm looking for one person who's trying to start a business. I could recommend this book to that lives in Ohio. I didn't just say, Jay, who do you think I should tell my book about? Yeah. Like ask someone to make an easy thing. So I said, hey, like who are people that want to give feedback or are excited, who are raising their hand to say yes? So I also prompted them saying, what stuff do you love? What stuff is confusing? And please just comment on it. The third part is I look for what they didn't say anything about because mm. they skipped. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The they implicit. skipped the parts they didn't talk about. Yeah. So even looking here, now- I sent this to 20 people. What I noticed, frankly, was about there was one or two per chapter that were the most critical. And, and it's up to your your own intelligence and preferences to decide who you agree with or disagree with. But each chapter had one person that I'm like, okay, this person's the most critical, but also the most accurate. And the best way to improve anything in life is feedback. You can ask your wife, you can ask your husband, you can ask your customers, you can ask your teammates, you can ask anybody. And that's how you'll get better. You can ask your customers, your audience. And so uh, there was one person per chapter. And this, man, my last chapter where I talk about going to India because I hated my life and I like walked around for a month and I was just all lost. He's like, I don't give a shit about your loser story. (laughs) (laughs) He's like, you you, you freaking loser, dude. Like, I don't care. Like I'm, I want to make money. Tell me how to make money. Not your like boo hoo life sucks. Wow. Story. And I called him. I was like, dude, thank you so much. Thank you. He's like, that stuff sucked. And I was like, yeah, you're right. I can see what you're talking about. I don't give a shit about your, he cares about himself. Yeah. Yeah. And so then, you know, I redid all the content and I went back to the people that I thought were the most critical in a productive way to say, Hey, what do you think now? Like, dude, fire. So that finished with a product after, you know, 200 people. And then we, we did have more beta readers and then I had weekend cohorts. Then I had the person live with me where it gave me confidence, you know, in a lot of our businesses, whether you're a content creator or whether you're a business operator, it builds confidence when you see results. And so one by one with these people, having them go through it gave me confidence. You know, ultimately the book is about giving themselves confidence. Now, in terms of the marketing, I always start out with, you know, besides a great product, which is the number one thing in marketing, you have to have a goal and a timeline. So a YouTube channel, well, how many subscribers or how many, you know, maybe it's watch hours. And then by when? This is stuff I learned from Zuckerberg and I've used it every single time in all my businesses, even AppSumo. AppSumo's goal, by the end of this year, 56.6 million net revenue. 82 point something gross sales. Okay, great. Buy one. Now, then you have to work backwards from your goal. So for me with the book, I mentioned it earlier, but I just wanted a thousand reviews. I thought, hey, many books don't ever make a thousand, but if I can get a thousand honest reviews, they'll have to buy the book. And if they like it that much, they'll probably tell another person. And it's a book that I think will, will live on. There's also data. So if you go Google ChatGPT, if you sell over 10,000 books, it's like a 40 or 50% chance of making it to a hundred thousand. Hmm. So part one was I got a thousand reviews, which is literally Jay. And this is how complicated it was. I have a Google doc, a Google spreadsheet, and I can pull it up right here. That's literally a thousand person names that Hmm. I'm going to contact 
after the book launches and say, hey, you got early cup of the book. You seem like you like it. Will you leave a review, please? That's it. That's the whole fancy, complicated marketing to get my thousand reviews. Now, after I knew I had a thousand people, it was like, all right, well, what's the next goal? And so, as I mentioned, I knew that if you sold 10,000, you could sell 100,000. But if you don't get it past the 10,000 mark, I think in the first 30 days, you'll never make past 100,000. And I was mm. like, well, let's at least do that. And I talked to other authors and Ramit commented, hey, why not at least see what it would take to get to 25,000 sales? Doesn't mean you do it, but what would you do differently? And that made me prioritize things differently. So I said, all right, let's work backwards from 25,000 sales as the main goal. And just at a high level, because I'm going a little long here, but the high level kind of five-step things to get to that goal, one was to build a core launch team that we talked about, the thousand people, that's thousand of 25. The next one was, what do you leverage within your own network? Most people never leverage all the things they have. Yeah. And I will say, Jay, I feel very blessed how many people are open to helping me. And that's also because I've helped people for you know, 20 years now. But also there's more people wanting us to win and many wanting us to see than a few who might say no. And that has been, honestly, I feel blessed. Every day I feel like I'm so lucky. And that everyone, it's available for everyone. We all have 100 contacts in our phone. So I looked at my own email list, which most important thing in social media is having your own email list. You can have Slack and you can have Discord. What I've noticed is that those fall off. If you have a thousand person audience, there's really a 10% audience who is going to be active on it. But your email list is going to have a larger amount of people that you can reach. So get an email list. So I was looking at nokagan.com email list and then AppSumo. And how do I leverage my own, my own thing? I don't have to kiss anyone's butt for. Third thing was create a dream 10 list. So I was like, if I could only be on 10 shows and Jay, you're number one. <laughs> uh, if, I could only, if I could only be on 10, who are the 10? Why do people go on these podcast tours? One, because they want to make a list, which, you know, because then they can sell more courses or they can sell more something. I don't need more validation. I've, I'm, I'm pretty good. You know, I've worked at some companies. I got a company you could still use. Yeah, pretty good. But I said, if I can only be on 10 and, and why do people go on podcasts? It's because podcast listeners are smart and have some money and they're generally wanting to improve themselves. Yeah. Right. Versus I've seen people with million person plus YouTube channels that it's people who are consuming, but maybe aren't taking action. It's a trust thing, right? Because for a lot of YouTube channels, views aren't even coming from your own subscribers, not nearly as much as a percentage of podcast listeners. Like every podcast listener of the show, almost every, is subscribed to the show. That's how they realize there's a new episode here. And that's why they're listening. So like you just have a higher efficacy of, well, if I am trusted by this host and have to come on the show and I present myself, well, that trust is going to transfer to me and my thing. Yeah. And just because you have a million subs on YouTube doesn't mean you're going to have a million book sales. Because one, those people aren't, you know, I think podcast listeners don't generally better looking. They have some money and they like improving themselves. That's why they're going to a podcast. Like it's easy to skip through a video or get a video and feel like you've made progress. But I would say people who take podcasts, they take themselves seriously is what I've observed from my own show. And so that's why most authors go on podcast book tours. And so my dream 10, some of them, and, and to be clear, I didn't get on my dream 10. I got rejected multiple times from Diary of a CEO. I think that's his new favorite game is rejecting me. Jordan Harbinger, who's been a 15-year friend, he didn't reject me, but we both agreed. It didn't, as much as he was on my Dream 10, his content is not aligned with my material. And so we agreed not to. So that was cool. How I built this, he's not replying to me anymore. <laughs> I love this. You know, but again, and why I share this is sometimes people might see me and be like, man, Noah's done some things that are doing well. But there's so many things that are not doing well. And that's part of business is I was telling someone this morning, sleek bio, email badge, shorty SMS, free calls to hall drop, meet fam, sumo market. 
I've done so many things that no one's ever seen and you just get to see tidycal.com or AppSumo or maybe the YouTube channel. You also don't see, you, you can go to the YouTube channel, but you probably haven't seen the 150 videos I did before you saw me knocking mm -hmm. on a door, mm -hmm. before I interviewed a billionaire. But it, I had to get started and stick with it to get to that point. And most people just don't get started, but they can. So that was number three. Number four is work with prefluencers. So I'd say like someone like yourself, man, you've been on the come up. And in, in two years, I hope you still take my call. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. I hope so, but th that's true, right? And those people, this has always been my approach. I like those people because your audiences are more engaged and they care more who you are in my experience. And that's what I did at mint.com for the marketing. AppSumo, this is another prefluencer strategy. When I was at AppSumo, I sponsored Tim Ferriss, his whole everything for $5,000 a month. Everything mm. on him for 5,000 bucks a month. Wow. Tim, I think this is public. I don't think you mind me sharing because you can, you can go. He charges for one ad in his podcast for one show, 50,000. And you have to do sign up for multiple podcasts. Yeah. But early on when I was like, this guy's got something special. He's, you know, the book is out for 5,000 a month, which was kind of a lot then, but it was ROIing in terms of uh, the customers coming in. It's much easier to get people on the rise than people who are already like have a market rate. Is totally. what, you know, and that's, that's marketing. If you're paying market prices, you're, you're competing equally. So I like competing unequally. Totally. And I, I, honestly, I like these proof loans. I like people like you. I appreciate that. I like the big guys too. I like the, you know, the people that maybe are more known, but it's also just easier. It's more fun. It's not as much of a big ask. And then it's like, as you're coming up, you're like, hey, I'm working on this thing. And a lot of this business stuff, it's think about who you can text for help because you've helped them. Yeah. Right. Like if Jay's working on something, he's like, hey, I got this idea. Are you available for a call? Have you responded to him? And if you do that, just get people on your texting or WhatsApp that you can text them if you need things. And I think that's kind of an interesting barometer of who's willing to help you. Yeah. So yeah, a lot of these prefluencers across the board, I looked on Goodreads for people who wrote reviews I liked. Hmm. I looked on TikTok and Instagram. I looked on LinkedIn. I asked show hosts. I Googled like Ali Abdal, one of my good friends. I, I Googled it on YouTube and, and iTunes what, what shows he went on. Good strategy. And then sometimes I'd be like, Ali, do you have an intro to that person? <laughs> yeah. It's the same way in business, right? Like look for people raising their hands. Yeah. And then lastly, it was this bulk buying thing, which... I was shitting on someone and I, there's these shady bulk buyers that like New York times, it's really hard to game because it's based on data, but it's also uh, subjective. They, they have some personal like editorial like humans. Yeah. Editorial, but you could have people buy books in certain locations and then you get raided. I, I don't need that. I don't want books to die in closets. I want them to be used like that. So I, I asked people like Dan Andrews and people who had audiences of entrepreneurs to buy some and then give it to their audience in exchange, like I'll have them on my show, if it made sense, or I've come on their stuff in the past. And so I only asked people that had those audiences and generally around 50 to 100 books. Hmm. I think I, that ended up being around 3,000, give or take. But again, I, for marketing, it's have a great product, have a goal and timeline and work backwards from that goal and timeline. So my 25,000 sales, each of these different sections of the five added up to it, the 25,000. So maybe I hit it or don't, but at least now I can execute on it and start seeing what's making a difference or not. Rapid fire here. Hit me. Let's say you're doing a second book. What is one thing you're absolutely doing the same way and one thing that you're absolutely not doing the Ooh. same way? I'm absolutely not writing a second book. <laughs> no, that doesn't count. That doesn't count. <laughs> no, I know. I hate when people do those answers. Like you give them A and B and they're like, <laughs> there's always some Stanford person. I choose option C. It's like, damn it. I love that you're thinking different, but it's annoying. I respect it and I hate it at the same time. What am I doing? I love that. That's a great, great question. 
I think the launch team and involving the audience in the writing process with every single word was a game changer. And this can apply whether you're doing a content business or you're doing Dynamite Circle, like an online community business or, or join Hamptons or you're doing a software business. How do you make your customers a part of the experience? Mm-hmm. Doesn't mean mm-hmm. you do everything they say, but you connect with them. That was a game changer. I'd absolutely do that. The thing I would do differently that I regret is that I didn't spend enough time on the page layout. I know that mm. sounds maybe trivial, but for instance, I read this guy named Garen Jones, who I like in Austin. He's a buddy. He did this thing in his book where on the pages, there's like a quote here. And I thought it was cool because nowadays with social media, you take photos and you post it to show people. What I regret is that there's no branding here that says Million Dollar mm. Weekend. So when you post mm-hmm. this, there's no Million Dollar Weekend. There's also zero images in the book. There's only tables. Zero images? I saw some images in the pre-copy you sent me. There is images of me, right? It's me at a pizza party when I was a fat little kid. Or there's images of, you know, Mint.com's homepage or AppSumo's homepage, but there's no drawings or graphics. And I would have hired or engaged someone from the publisher for my own team to really help design. A, I think the layout's strong, right? It's, it's to the point and it gets it done. But I would have liked to have like, you know, the branding a little tighter inside and more drawings. I think that would have been unique. Rabbi Can't Lose, thank you for being on the show. Dude, thank you for having me. We're really covering a lot of ground in the world of publishing here on the podcast. And if you want to get caught up on all of the author and publishing episodes we've published so far, check out the publishing playlist we have linked in the show notes. If you want to learn more about Noah or pick up the book, Million Dollar Weekend, we have links in the show notes to his personal website, his social media, AppSumo, and more. Thank you to Noah for being on the show. Thank you to Adam Lockwood for editing this episode and Emily Klaus for creating our artwork. If you enjoyed this episode, tweet at me at jklaus and let me know. Or if you really want to say thank you, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Thanks for listening and I'll talk to you next week.